Amen. 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 Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. Man, it's good to be back up here in the pulpit after two Sundays off. It felt like forever. Uh, I miss it when I'm not up here. Uh, and I trust that you guys are now starting to get back into a normal routine now that the holidays have passed. Anybody feel like your lives are coming back together as of maybe this week? Um, hopefully 2020 is already off to a good start in terms of the habits that you want to cultivate this year. I know one thing for sure, that being in church like this with your church family, worshiping together as a body and studying God's word together is really the core of what it means to lay a foundation for good spiritual habits in 2020. So well done this morning. I'm praising God for each one of you, for every soul in this building today. Today we're diving into a new preaching series. Yeah. Woo. But before we do something the church always does, if you notice this in the church, we, we finish something and we race to the next thing, right? Before we just race to what's next, can I just say that our Advent series from last month was awesome? It was a blast. Not only was it personally fun for me to be able to dive into the Christmas story and break down all the details of that uh, from the Gospels, but it was such a personal blessing to see so many of you, so many members of our body participating in it using their gifts and their talents. You think about all the holiday design that went into uh, making our NPR look like a, a place of worship and not an NPR, uh, the decor team that did an amazing job, the church choir, right? And all that we had special music every week, so Grant and his praise team did an amazing job, worked really, really hard. Amen. And because there was all that extra work, what that meant was a lot of you were involved in more setup and breakdown as usual, plenty of work to go around, and so many of you, you came with open hands and you said, how can I serve? I know I, you know, if you're like me, I can't get up there and sing, but I can carry stuff, right? And I can break down. And every gift is necessary for kingdom work. So thank you to everybody that pitched in. And as we wrap up, we come to the end of the year, we wrap up our 12th year as a church family. Every time about this year, I stop and I'm just really thankful to God for our elder team, uh, for the guys, the brothers in arms that I serve with in terms of leading this church. Uh, I know you all don't know it, but they work so hard and they serve in so many ways and they shepherd so much, oftentimes without recognition behind the scenes, but the Lord sees it. So I thank you guys, my brothers, uh, for being on this journey with us. Uh, and in particular this week, I'm grateful for Adam and Eric, who... Uh, over the last two Sundays, took time away from their families during the holiday season. Sometimes we don't realize that the holidays, while everybody's enjoying all this time off, people in ministry are working harder than ever. And both Adam and Eric took time away from their families during the holidays to prepare two really excellent messages over the last two Sundays. And both of them, if you notice, were, were focusing on a truth that we all know, but we need to be reminded of constantly. And that is that the priority of our life has to be moving towards Christ. Our priority has to be moving towards Jesus. The priority has to be, as Adam pointed to in 2 Corinthians 4, the renewal of our inner person day by day, as Paul says. Renewal, transformation. And then Eric came and he shared with us the story of the rich young ruler and he talked about how we cannot allow any worldly desire or worldly comfort to stand in the way of our first love, which is to follow Jesus. There is nothing more important on this earth than following him. And we saw that from the rich young ruler. If there's anything in the way, even now, as we, again, we're in that sort of that rhythm of, of making resolutions, whatever you want to call them, spiritual commitments. If there's anything in the way of you following Jesus in 2020, sell it. 
right? As Jesus said to the rich young ruler, get rid of it, give it away, but get it out of the way so that you can follow after Jesus. What did, it, what did he say? Take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow Jesus. That's our mandate. So those are great reminders as we start the new year, and I hope you've already decided to be intentional this year in 2020. In your spiritual growth, that's something the elders want to focus on, is constantly moving everybody towards Jesus. It doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. If you know of an unbeliever, move them towards salvation, towards Jesus. If you're, if you're young in the faith, move towards maturity. If you're mature in the faith, continue to grow so that you can lead others. We're all moving towards Christ, and that's going to be the big uh, sort of push point for the elders in 2020. Okay, to the business of the day. As I said, we're diving into a brand new preaching service. I did mention that, right? Okay, good. As you can see on the screen, we're titling the series, Return to Me, subtitle, God's Call Through the Minor Prophets. So after a good, really long expository uh, series in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, we're going to be back in the Old Testament for a while, and I can't be more excited about this. Now, I've been teasing this topic for months, in case you notice. I've been mentioning it, just sort of leaking it out. Hey, we're going to be going through the minor prophets. And so I have a question for you as we start. The first time you heard that, if you heard it before this morning, or you, you walked in, you saw that screen, what was the first thought that came in your mind when you thought of a series in the Minor Prophets? Okay, we got one woohoo. We got a woohoo in the front. That's good. Um, let me try to guess the rest of you. Uh, there might have been some woohoos, but a, a few of the responses you might have had. Uh, first one, well, that sounds pretty boring. Okay. Now, especially if you're, uh, maybe you've come out of, of Master's College, Master's University, you've done the Old Testament survey thing, you're like, oh, the Minor Prophets again? Um, you might think this is going to be boring. Second response might have been, well, good, I don't ever read those books because they're really, really hard. And that's a good response as well. How about this response? Hold on a second. Is Zephaniah really a book in the Bible? That might have been your response. Or why do we need to know about Minor Prophets? How is that going to impact my Christian walk? And so whatever your reaction was when you first heard about the Minor Prophets, it's fine for now, but trust me on this, five months from now, as we go through this, you are going to have your minds blown with what you see in the Minor Prophets. And I, I have no doubt that God has something uh, big for you in this series, and the reason I can say that and be so sure about it is not due to my preaching skills, but because of who God is, and because of the promise that we have from Him in Isaiah 55. I'm going to go ahead and put this on the screen because it's worth reading. Listen to the promise we have from Isaiah 55. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so, and, and look at how God personalizes this throughout. So my word, God says, that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send to do. Powerful passage, right? And the imagery there is really amazing and so practical and so easy to understand. We know the rain falls from heaven. Uh, even in Southern California, we know that, right? The rain comes from heaven and it always accomplishes its purpose. It causes the land to become fruitful and it provides food for people to eat. In the same way, we know that God's word comes from above. It comes down from heaven and it always accomplishes the purpose that God has for it. It produces fruit in our lives as we feed on his word. So beautiful language there. Every word that God has given to us. Yes, the minor prophet, even Zephaniah. Every word that God gives us is purposeful and designed to produce the spiritual fruit 
in us. So what is our job in that? As God is doing all these things, he's so personal about it. What's our job? It's to soak it up. Just like the ground soaks up the rain so that its purpose is fulfilled. Our job is to sit and soak up the truth of God's word. So if you'll commit to dive into this series with all of your mind and all of your heart, I guarantee five months from now, you're not going to be as intimidated by the Old Testament. You're, you're going to learn way more than you thought you ever needed to know about the history of Israel. You're going to have a grasp not just on prophecy, but eschatology as well. You're going to be able to see with more clarity the attributes of God, especially his, his holiness and his justice. And my, you're going to see a bit of yourself in the ancient Israelites. And that's really the painful part of going through like a series like this. We're going to go through these, these ancient people, and because we know that human nature is consistent from beginning to end, we're going to say, ooh, I, yeah, I could see myself doing that had I lived in that period. So we're going to see ourselves in the ancient Israelites, and my prayer is that through their experience, we will hear this constant voice from God, the voice that they heard back in that day that says, basically, listen, my children, put away your idols and return to me. Put away your idols, return to me, for I am a gracious God, long-suffering and merciful in nature. So with that in mind, today's really just about introducing a few important concepts. We want to till the soil just a little bit to get your hearts ready as we dive into our first minor prophet next Sunday. So this is just the introduction, but here's the, the first thing that you have to understand before we dive into this series. The root of our spiritual history is Jewish. Now, as I say that, for some of us, you're like, well, yeah, that's obvious. But for some of us who, who grew up in the church, we're like, well, that sounds a little foreign to our ears, but it's very, very true. And this is one of the reasons why here at Oak Hill, we don't ignore the Old Testament, like a lot of churches tend to do, to ignore it because it's hard. The Old Testament's an essential part of our faith. So we always go New Testament and we come back to the Old so that we're preaching the full counsel of God. We have to remember that Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. Jesus didn't suddenly appear on the scene in some type of historical vacuum. And as we studied in our Advent series, we know that his going forth into our world, as Paul said in Galatians 4, his going forth came out of Genesis 3, and it came out of Deuteronomy 18, and 1 Samuel 7, and Psalm 22, and Isaiah 7, and Micah 5, and Zechariah 9, and Malachi 3, and many other passages. Our spiritual history is Jewish. Without the Hebrew scriptures, there is no Abrahamic covenant. There is no Davidic throne. There is no suffering servant and conquering king for us to speak of. And obviously, all those things matter to a Christian because they find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom we worship on this side of the cross. So this is our history. And God has always been and currently is sovereignly writing human history. Even as we speak, sometimes we like to, like, we talk about history in the past. God is writing history right now, and you and I are a part of that. From the very beginning, with a great purpose in mind, God has been causing all things to move forward towards a very specific end. Now, that may not sound remarkable to you. You're like, well, of course, but to ancient people, that was very, very unusual. In all of our scholarship of the ancient Near East, the people groups, whether it's the Canaanites or the Hittites or the Moabites or the Termites, all of them, that's a terrible joke, it's a terrible, terrible joke. All of the, you've heard it before, all those people groups, among all of them, only Israel claimed to worship a sovereign God who was shepherding 
everything towards an end. You may not know that. Only Israel did that. The Israelites looked at the scriptures and realized that history was linear. It had a particular beginning and it was moving forward to a particular end. That was not common in the ancient Near East. All those other people groups saw life as sort of a random array of circles, of, of a never-ending circle or series of circles. And, and they worshiped gods who, who you know, were arbitrary in everything that they did. They were completely unpredictable. They weren't taking time or history anywhere. So of all of the ancient Near East people groups, Israel alone was indeed set apart as a unique people with a unique perspective on the world, a unique perspective on history because they worshiped the only one true God. That's part of our history. Listen to how God himself describes this in Isaiah chapter 46. He declares, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning from ancient times, what is still to come? I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. So God has been driving and causing his history to unfold since the time of creation. Think of it for a second like a photograph. Think of I know, I know now we have digital photos, but back in the day, we had to develop a picture. Did you know that? Okay. So think of a photograph that's being developed, and it's slowly coming into focus. Picture time that way. Picture this, this period from beginning to end as a, as a picture coming into focus. Every part of the Hebrew canon, from Genesis to Malachi, brings more clarity to that photograph. Every king, every prophet, every stage of Israel's history is adding bit by bit to this narrative as it comes into focus. And at the center of all, of course, is the promised Messiah. He becomes the center of the picture. As it becomes more clear, his face begins to be the center of this particular photograph. And I say that even today, knowing that the picture is somewhat blurry right now, correct? Because for now, today, we see things not as a not as they are, but, but, but through this glass, and it's a little bit fuzzy, but there's coming a day, you guys. And this is what we talk about, our hope and our joy. There's coming a day when that photograph will be utterly clear as can, see, clear as can be as we see Jesus face to face. So it's a photograph, and, and, and God's history is coming more and more into focus. According to Paul, we ought to pay attention to these things. Remember, we were in Romans recently, Romans 15.4. Paul said, look, whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction. Oh, Jeff, why are we going to the Old Testament? Because it was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. That's why we study the Old Testament. Our history is Jewish. Let me tell you a quick story. In about three months from now, Tanya and I and a, and a team from Oak Hill are going to be traveling to Israel together for, for a 12-day study tour. It's going to be amazing. And the Israeli tour guide who's going to be leading us in the ground operation is a woman by the name of Tali Abadi. And uh, Tali was born and raised in Jerusalem. Uh, she was a, a faithful a Jew born into Judaism. She served in the Israeli army. She did everything that a normal Jewish girl living in the land would do. And then one day she met a fellow student who was from, from Finland, a Christian, whose family who had had moved to Israel, and they had set, uh, settled in the Messianic community that's known as Yad Hashmonah. And they, this Christian community, some of you have been there, you know it, 
uh, this girl, this Finnish girl and Tally became fast friends. And as their friendship developed over time, this Finnish Christian tried to give Tally a New Testament. Uh, over and over again, she said, you should read this. And over and over again, Tally said, no, thank you. Years passed, and their friendship continued to grow, but she continued to say, no, thank you. Why? Because she has been raised to believe that Jesus, even Yeshua or Jesus, was the Messiah of the Gentiles. That Jesus was for Europeans and for Americans. That Jesus had no connection whatsoever to the Torah or to her Jewish history. Years passed, and finally, this Finnish Christian girl just wore her down. And she said, fine, I'll take your New Testament. Paperback edition. <laughs> and she put it, it sat on the shelf for months. And then one day, out of sheer boredom, Tally took that New Testament off the shelf, and she opened it up to the Gospel of Matthew. What did she find? A Jewish genealogy. A right out of the gate, right? A Jewish genealogy. She said, well, this is interesting. And then she saw all these Jewish names in a very Jewish story, cities and towns that she had been to in her homeland. She saw a, a, a story after story of, of Jewish life that had a very distinct Jewish culture. And in her testimony, she says, I couldn't believe my eyes. I had been lied to all my life. This story, the New Testament gospel, is a Jewish story. It's the story of me and my people. And it changed everything. Tally became a follower of Yeshua, and she's been a follower of Yeshua now for more than 30 years. In fact, she is a member of the only evangelical church in the entire city of Jerusalem today, and I'm excited. We're going to get to spend 12 days with her and hear more of her stories as she shows us her history and her homeland, and it's going to be an amazing time. Our history is Jewish. Amazing. So we need to know this because it supports our faith. Didn't we just recently study this in Romans 11? Look what Paul says. Paul says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, those are Jews, you, Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Very, very important. The olive root that Paul is talking about here are the Jewish patriarchs, the Hebrew scriptures, the promises given to Israel, and most of all, the Jewish Messiah who came to be the serpent striker and the redeemer of both Jews and Gentiles. And so being a Christian means being grafted into the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Did we deserve it? Absolutely not. But we've been grafted into this incredibly rich root that supports us. Remember, Scripture says over and over again, Gentiles like us, we were once not a people. We had no hope in the world. But now by the grace of our God, by the blood of Christ, God calls us his people. So don't be arrogant toward the branches, but instead study Jewish history. It supports us. It's a very, very good thing. So that's why this preaching series is going to be important. We're going to dig through all kinds of Jewish history and Jewish culture, even some Jewish, some Hebrew language, and we're going to try to, to bring it to you for the, for the sake of learning. So if we're to step back then and look at the Old Testament, look at the minor prophets from above, from 30,000 feet, where do the minor prophets fit? What's the significance of these 12 guys? Well, let me get this out of the way first. Why do we call them minor prophets? Is it because they don't matter? Is it because they're less important than the major prophets? 
No, they're called minor prophets only because of the length of their writing. And the major prophets are only called major because of their volume. Think about it. How many chapters in Isaiah? 66. Are we ever going to preach to Isaiah? I don't know. 66 chapters of Isaiah, 52 chapters of Jeremiah, 48 chapters of Ezekiel, and 12 incredibly dense chapters in the book of Daniel. So we want to be careful as we talk about major and minor, and we talk about a book like you know, Zephaniah. Well, is Zephaniah really important? We want to make sure we don't violate what we know to be true from 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed, right? All Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is God-breathed and therefore equal equal in its degree of truth and inspiration. Very important principle. So major or minor, they all constitute the word of God. So quick primer then on the Hebrew scriptures. First of all, if you're talking to an Israeli about the Old Testament, or you're talking even to a religious Jew here in America, they are not going to acknowledge the term Old Testament. In fact, they're going to be insulted by it. So be really careful. They will not acknowledge Old Testament. And in fact, they might even be Uh, somewhat resistant to the idea of calling it a Hebrew Bible. Why? Because the word Bible has a Greek root to it, and of course it's so connected to Christianity. So the most accurate term that you can use when you talk about the Hebrew Scriptures is a word that I'm going to show you. There it is. Is the word Tanakh. Say it in spit. Tanakh. Spit it just a little bit, right? That is a word that summarizes the three divisions of the Hebrew canon. We have Torah, First of all, which is really the word for teaching or instruction. We know that to be the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses. Sometimes we just call it what? The law, okay, the Torah. We have the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which are the writings. And the term writings is sort of a catch-all for everything that's not either Torah or prophets. They just fall into the writings. So where does the word Tanakh come from? Well, if you take the first Hebrew letter in each one of those divisions, we have Tav, we have Nun, and we have Kaf, and then you add vowels in between them in order to make it pronounceable, you get a word that's really not a word. It's an acronym, and it's Tanakh. And that's, that's how your, your religious Jewish friends are going to speak about their scriptures, a Tanakh. Make sense? And by the way, you can get a copy of a Tanakh. I have this one that says... This actually is titled the Jewish Study Bible, but it's a Tanakh translation. Great resource. Okay, so this, this actually comes in a study Bible format. Uh, and what I mean by that is it has a rabbinical commentary with it. So if you want to study a messianic passage, you're like, well, how do the Jews, how do they understand Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53? You can get a rabbinical interpretation in something like this. And I think I got this at just a, a regular bookstore. But this is a really, really great uh, reference to have. Okay, So understand that the Tanakh is not organized in the same way that our Old Testament is. And by the way, this is something you should know. Jews, religious Jews, Orthodox Jews do not hold to the same doctrine of inspiration that we do. Okay? We, they, don't, they don't believe in the same idea of equal value and, and equal, equally inspired works. In their minds, in the minds of the rabbis and the scholars of Judaism, there is a hierarchy of value amongst the books of scripture. So the Torah, for example, takes precedence over all the others. It's considered more sacred, more important, and more binding than any other work in the Hebrew text. Second would be the prophets, and then comes the writings. And because have Jews have for many, many centuries now, they have believed in what they call the oral tradition. Okay, so, so a Jew would tell you that when, 
when Moses was on Mount Sinai, not only did he receive the Ten Commandments, but he received oral instruction from God that then was passed down through the generations. And then so then you have rabbis building upon rabbis upon rabbis building up this commentary that eventually one day is collected into this thing we call the Mishnah. And so now you have all kinds of sort of layers and layers of Jewish teaching. So when we talk about tradition, we're talking about unwritten laws and customs and interpretations that are put together. And here's the shocking thing for a Christian, because if we understand what inspiration is. Sometimes you take an oral tradition and it takes precedence over written scripture in the mind of Jews. So for example, there might be an interpretation of Torah that's written down by Rabbi Akiva in the second century, a very important rabbi. And in the minds of, of, of Orthodox Jews, what Rabbi Akiva says has more value and is more binding than something the psalmist says or a prophet says in the written text. And so you just need to know that they don't see things quite the way we do. It reminds us, though, do you remember when the Pharisees and the scribes, they came to Jesus and they said, hey, how come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? Before they eat? What did Jesus say? By the way, they call this breaking the tradition of the elders. How did Jesus react? Matthew 15, he answered them, well, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? So Jesus is referring to this very practice of placing the oral tradition above the written word. And then just a few verses later, he calls these very same people blind guides. And so we know what God thinks about this idea of oral tradition over written scripture. So let's go back to the Tanakh. How is it organized? So Torah comes first. Torah is always at the pinnacle of Jewish thought, and each of the five books have very specific Hebrew names. Occasionally, I'll put some Hebrew up there just so that you can see it. These are the names, the Hebrew names of the five books of Moses. First of all, there is Bereshit, which means in the beginning, the very first word of our book of Genesis. Second, we have Ve'el Shemot, the very first two words in the book of Exodus, which means these are the names. We have Vayikra, the very first word in Leviticus, which means, and he called. We have Bemidbar, which is, I believe, the fifth word in the Hebrew text of the book of Numbers, which means in the wilderness. And finally, El Hadebarim. We have in the, the first word in Deuteronomy, which means these are the words. So this is the way, again, if you speak to an Israeli, you talk to a, an Orthodox Jew, a religious Jew, they're not going to, what is, what is Genesis? What is Exodus? What, the, what are these things? They have different names for it in Hebrew. So Torah takes precedence. After that comes the, the prophets, Nevi'im, and the prophets themselves are organized in the Tanakh in three subgroups. First of all, they are, they are the former prophets, some of which, by the way, we would say are not necessarily prophetic books, but more historical books. So we're talking about the books of Judges and Joshua and Samuel, which are one book in the Jewish text, and Kings, also one book. Then come what they call the later prophets, and in the later prophets, they put three of our major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then third, all lumped together, the Tanakh combines what we call the 12 minor prophets into one single book. So Torah first, then the prophets, and finally the writings. And the writings are sort of a jumble of various genres and types of books, poetry and wisdom literature like Psalms and and Proverbs and Job are there. Historical books like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles are there. And then they lump five books together, and they call it the scrolls, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. 
And then there's one book that's conspicuously missing from all that. One book that sort of stands out that's been put in the writings of Judaism that we put among the prophets. Anybody know which book I'm talking about? Did I hear Daniel? Yeah, Daniel, the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel is considered one of the writings in Judaism. Now, why do you suppose that would be? Why do you suppose rabbinical scholars would sort of downgrade Daniel out of the prophets and into the writings? Because Daniel's clearly a prophet. By every, every known definition of what a prophet is, Daniel is a prophet. And obviously he's Jewish, his friends are Jewish, so why would they downgrade it? Good. The setting, which is what? Is in Babylon. But what's the main subject matter of Daniel? It's the future of Gentile kingdoms, not Israel. So it's not an Israel-focused book, even though it's prophetic. It's very much focused on future Gentile kingdoms. And so soon, after the period of the Roman wars, you know, the Jews fought wars against the Romans between 66 and 135 A.D., after the period of the Roman wars, there's this great diaspora, this dispersing of the Jews all over the world, and it's at that point the surviving rabbis and scholars decided that Daniel didn't mean quite so much, and they sort of downgraded it in terms of its study. So that's how the Tanakh is organized. Let's address a few more basic questions, and then we'll wrap up. What is a prophet? That seems like something that we should know. What exactly is a prophet? A prophet is one who receives the word of God and does one simple thing, faithfully proclaims it. That's it. The most important thing you need to know about a prophet is he doesn't speak on his own account. He doesn't provide commentary on what God says. He simply transmits the message. He is a spokesperson for the Lord. He is a mouthpiece for God. In terms that we can understand, if you think about our government, which I know is always a scary thing, but if you think about our government, he's like the president's press secretary. The press secretary goes out, and it's not his or her job to give opinions of their own. That's not the point. His or her job is to relay the opinions of one who ranks much higher than himself or herself. What are the thoughts and the opinions and the reactions and the intentions of the president? That's what matters. And the same thing here when we look at uh, what, a, what a prophet does. Now, it's common also to think of of, of prophets as simply predictors of the future. If you, if you did a man-on-the-street interview and you walked up to somebody who, who didn't know much about the Bible or wasn't religious, you said, what do you think a prophet is? They'd probably say they're like, well, they're pre they predict things. They're like Nostradamus, right? If you look, History Channel, Discovery Channel, they'll do shows about, about prophecy, and they always focus on, well, they predict the future. Is that true? There's a couple really obvious problems with that. First of all, Prediction is not the right word. Prediction is not what a prophet does. Prophecy is about causation, not prediction. Let me say that again and think what I'm saying. Prophecy is about causation, not about prediction. Biblical prophets didn't set out to predict the future. What they did was announce God's sovereign plans for the future. Plans that God would cause to come about because he is all-powerful, because he is sovereign over everything. They declared what would come to pass. The classic analogy of this uh, that's often given in seminary, and for students, you'll appreciate this. Think of a professor's syllabus for a second. Is a professor's syllabus a prediction? Set aside what you think about your professors for a second. <laughs> How many of you guys have had professors, you're like, they never got to the syllabus? Right? They handed out the first day, and, and by week eight, they've gotten to week two, and you're like, seriously, I'm paying for this. Nobody? 
That happened in seminary all the time. I'm like, come on, come on, let's get through this, right? I'm paying good money. Anyway, a syllabus is the professor's plan to carry out the goals of the class, right? And because the professor has the authority and the power to move the class along at whatever pace he wants, however he sees fit, the end result of the syllabus is defined by the professor alone, and those things will come to pass because he's in charge, that's like God. God brings to pass at whatever pace he wants, his end result will come to pass. Now, if a student TA steps in to the class and says, hey, I'm handing out the professor's syllabus, are they sovereign? Absolutely not. They can't predict what's actually going to happen because they don't have the authority or power to pace the class. What are they doing? They're simply announcing the intention of the prof. That's like the prophet. They're announcing the intention, but they have no power of causation. That is in God's hands alone. See the difference? Listen to it again. You'll work through it. So how do we classify the prophets that we have in scriptures? Again, in our Bibles, there's 16 total. How many major? Four. How many minor? Twelve. What type of people were they? You know that some of them were actually national leaders. Moses is an example. Uh, Moses was a national leader, right? Some of them served as advisors to the king. So they were real tight with the king in the, the royal court. Guys like Samuel, guys like Nathan, right? Some prophesied but never wrote a thing down. What we call non-writing prophets. Elijah, Elisha. Never wrote anything down. Now, all those guys I just mentioned served pretty early in Israel's history. When we think of prophecy, we tend to think of what we call the classical period of prophecy, mid-9th century, when the prophets really began to write things down. And while earlier prophets often advised kings, the classical prophets directed their message sometimes to the king, but oftentimes to the nation as a whole, to the people. And what were they concerned with? Pointing out spiritual idolatry in the nation, social injustice in the land, things of that nature. In particular, their ministries tended to be clustered around times of crisis, times when the people were beginning to wander from the covenant God, beginning to wander away into spiritual adultery. And so we're going to see as we go through these 12 prophets a series of, of very important sort of themes that run through all of them. First of all, the first theme is indictment. God sends his prophets to call people back. That's why the series is called Return to Me. The first thing the prophets are going to do is indict the people. They're going to make a very clear statement of how they've offended Yahweh, whether it's idolatry or it's injustice. And at the heart of Israel's wandering from God was this thing of we call spiritual adultery, chasing after other gods, refusing to live in a way that's set apart, but beginning to look like all of the pagan peoples that live in the neighborhood. And in that, dishonoring Yahweh's great name. So the first thing we see is indictment. The second thing then is we see judgment. How is God going to discipline or punish his people for their idolatrous sin? And the form that usually came in was some type of national failure or some type of invasion from a foreign people. And sometimes God's people would be carried off into captivity and exile, part of God's punishment. Third, we see instruction. Now, this is interesting about the prophets of all the four themes we're going to look at, there's less instruction than the others. And that may seem funny. Like, well, why would there be less instruction? Well, the prophets weren't teachers. 
They were preachers in the sense that they're, they're exhorting, based on God's word, the return and the faithfulness of the people, but they weren't there to teach. See, there was this core assumption built into God's covenant with his people. Israel had received the law, and they understood the expectations. It wasn't a mystery to them. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like, well, I just never really knew what God wanted from us. It's very plain. And so rather than a lot of instruction, the general message of the prophets was very simple and repetitive, return to me, God says. Lay aside your false gods. Repent of your unfaithfulness. Come back to what you know is true. So the classical prophets function as what we call watchmen. In fact, Ezekiel is referred to in that way. What, what does a watchman do? He stands on the wall, guarding the, the city, guarding the people. And so the prophets stood on the wall and they looked out at the landscape warning the people of all of the spiritual danger that lay all around them. And in that sense, we can say not only were they watchmen, they, they were reformers as well. What does a reformer do? He's always exhorting people to come back to what? The anchor of their soul, God's word. So they're watchmen looking for all the danger out there and reformers saying, return, return, come back. Fourth, the last message, and this is the really great one, is always hope and promise. How many of you guys have been confused? You read the prophets and you're like, I'm so confused. In one chapter, they're talking about this cataclysmic judgment, and over here, they're talking about total restoration. Yeah, it can be confusing. But this is so, honestly, considering the repeated failures of Israel, this is the most surprising part of all the prophecies that we'll study. Even though his people routinely wander away, and fall into spiritual adultery over and over again because Yahweh is long-suffering in nature, he is constantly communicating his love for his people and his, his goal in the end to restore them and to restore them to their land. Is that good news for Christians, by the way? That God is long-suffering and patient and loving even when we wander? We're going to see a lot of that. Like I said, we're going to identify somewhat with the ancient Israelites. God is a covenant being. He is so faithful in all of his ways and his promises. We read this in Romans 11. His promises to his people, Israel, are irrevocable. When God makes a promise, he will fulfill it. So in spite of Israel's repeated sin, they still have a future. They still have a future hope. Frankly, again, this is one of the things that makes prophecy so difficult is because you see these alternating messages in the text. What we're going to do as we go through these 12 prophets is try to try to exposit those a little bit and help you to see what God is saying on one hand, but what he's looking forward to in the future on the other. Amen? So who were these men, these 12 prophets? It's funny. If you laid out all 12, their identity side by side, you know what you'd see? There's no consistent pattern to it. There just isn't. And as we say so often, God is a God who chooses. We're not given the wise. It's part of the mystery of how God operates. Why choose this man and not choose another? He does it according to his sovereign will, not according to our wisdom. So we see in these 12 men incredible diversity. On the one hand, you see, well, you see different, different tribes of Israel. You see different professions, uh, what, what people did for a living. You see, you see very distinct social statuses. So on the one hand, our friend Zephaniah, who I've already talked about several times, great, great, maybe a third great, grandson of King Hezekiah. So he has a royal bloodline. And on the other hand, we have Amos. You know what Amos did for a living? Yeah, he's a farmer and a shepherd. So, so God calls this incredible diversity of, 
of people to come and prophesy uh, on his part. So we're going to see all kinds of men, variety of messages, but all tailored to the particular age that they live in and the circumstances of Israel's heart in that day. So before we go, I couldn't really squeeze in a map today, but I did squeeze in a timeline. So, so and if you want to take, some of you guys are taking pictures of it. If you want to, and all the timelines and maps that we're going to include in this, in this series, if you want copies, you just have to ask. Just send me an email. I'll send you a picture of the slide. But look at this timeline. What we see here are the ages of prophetic ministry in Israel's history. And each one of those dates is really, really important in your spiritual history, our Jewish history. Now, 2100 is a sort of a roundabout number for, for when Abraham lived, the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Around the year 1400 is when Joshua leads God's people across the Jordan River to conquer the promised land. And what comes next, the subsequent period of the judges, a very, a very low period in the history of Israel. Around 1050 is when the people cry out for a king. Hey, God, we know that you're our king, but we want a king like all the other people. So sad, right? And God gives them Saul. But after that, David and Solomon. And this is really, this is seen as the period of the mark. The mark is seen as the golden age of Israel when the borders had expanded and the power of Israel was at its height. In 930, something tragic happens. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, divides the kingdom into two. We call this the divided kingdom period. So creative, right? Um, and so we have the, the northern kingdom of Israel, and we have the southern kingdom of Judah. Very good. So the kingdom is divided. 722 is a tragic date in, Jew, in Jewish history. That's when the northern kingdom is viciously attacked and conquered by the Assyrians, and they're carried away. We talk about the lost tribes of Israel. Ten tribes in the north are carried away in 722. So at that point, we have a solitary kingdom. Which kingdom remains? Judah. But Judah, too, is going to be attacked and falls in 586 to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And the Judahites, by the way, Jews are called Jews because they come from Judah. Okay, good. Because that's, that's the only kingdom left, right? The Judahites return to the land after 70 years in captivity in Babylon. They rebuild their temple in the year 516. They rebuild their city and their lives. And we have this kingdom that we call the post-exile kingdom. And so we're going to see these 12 minor prophets fill these last four uh, particular kingdoms. Next Sunday, we're going to zoom into one of these. See the divided kingdom there? We're going to zoom in 930 to 722, and we're going to look at our first prophet next week, Obadiah, who serves, I believe, and there's some, there's some controversy on the dating, I believe serves right around the year 850 BC. Now, here's the thing. Every week, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Talked about professors and syllabi and all that stuff. Is it syllabi or syllabuses? Syllabi, okay. Uh, it's not going to be a lot, but something to sort of dig into the scripture each and every week in anticipation of what's coming up the next Sunday. And this week's assignment is the easiest one you'll get. What's the shortest book in the Old Testament? Obadiah. 21 verses. Can you do it? What I want you to do is open up Obadiah a couple times this week. Read it through. It's... It's short, and listen, if you read it and go, I have no idea what's happening here, that's okay. That's the whole point of coming together on Sunday. We'll work through it, and you're going to see the beauty of God's word. You're going to see it come out. 
So let me just leave you this morning with this quick encouragement. If you walked in this morning thinking this study was going to be really hard or it's going to be really confusing or dry and boring or not applicable to your life, I want you, everybody here to try to set that thinking aside. Be expectant of what God's going to do. God's word never returns empty. We, just, we saw that promise, right? Through his word, he will do in your life whatever he sovereignly desires to do. Your role in it is just to be open to that, to say, Lord, by your spirit, will you help me to understand your word better? And will you do a work in my heart to change and transform me? Even in the book of Obadiah, I can be helped to move towards Jesus. And I can help others move towards Jesus. Sometimes we come to church, we're like, eh, what's on the menu today? No, be expected about what God might do through this 21-verse book in your life and in the life of others. Make sense? By the way, this is not just going to be an academic study. I know some of you guys, you see maps and timelines, and you roll your eyes. I get it. My wife's one of you. Uh, she's like, no more maps. Yes, amen. <laughs> so not everybody's super inclined towards this type of thing. So we will look at the history. We will look at the parallels of the, of the kings and, and the circumstances of each day. But my promise to you, my promise is that we are going to extrapolate all kinds of really important practical stuff and some real heart stuff that we can chew on even in the midst of what appears to be a pretty practical and historical study. So get to reading Obadiah this week. I am excited to jump in next Sunday. Amen?